Well, I'm grateful that we got to sing that song, and yes, we are in Exodus 15. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to that chapter, Exodus chapter 15. This portion of God's Word is typically referred to as either the Song of Moses or the Song at the Sea. Uh, Song of Moses, because Moses leads. It's a song at the sea because it's after the Israelites have crossed the sea on dry land and come to the other side, and there they are when they begin singing. Exodus chapter 15, I'll be reading verses 1 through 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's pray together.
Father, we ask you again this morning that you would bless us as we look at your word. Pray that you would capture our, our attention. You certainly deserve it. Lord, I pray that we would be focused on what's here in front of us. This great declaration of your victory, your triumph, your might, and your glory. And Father, I ask that you would use this passage to reinvigorate our praise for you and our love for you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The idea, even the terminology of praise can be uh, a convoluted one. Convoluted because there's so much baggage attached to it. We have contemporary praise and worship. Uh, we use the word praise the Lord shorthand when we say PTL in our text messages for praise the Lord when some major or minor event comes up and we need some way to acknowledge that God's involved. We turn on praise music in the background of our day and just kind of let it gently flow throughout our day and there it is just kind of waffling around our house. Praise and worship is a genre of music that you can buy. Uh, it's a huge industry. You can go to a concert that has praise and worship music and there can be cheering and clapping and hurraying for the, all the people playing on stage. You can go to a church service that is full of hoopla and lights and fog machines and a band on stage that plays with great instrumentation and a crowd that is in a frenzy of emotions and it's called praise and worship. And yet, all that's really being praised is the highs of human experience. You can... Go to a YouTube and see a song that has 133 million views that falls broadly into the category of praise and worship and has lyrics like this. Don't want to forget how I feel right now. On the mountaintop, I can see so clear what it's all about. Stay by my side when the sun goes down. Don't want to forget how I feel right now. And that exalts the experience of human emotions as the object of our praise. Compare that with another hymn that says, Tell me, as you hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear, his cause disowning, foes insulting, his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would intervene to save but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. What's our worship about? What is praise about? What is it? Exodus 15 helps us. It's a song of praise by people who have just been delivered from the clutches of the enemy. And after this experience, they start singing a song of praise. Moses leads it. The sons of Israel join in. And at the end of the chapter, you have Miriam, along with the women, dancing and singing as some sort of antiphonal choir that are singing along with the whole congregation. And so there is this scene of majestic praise that's happening. And as we work through this passage, although this is a song that can only be uniquely sung by those people who were brought through on the Red Sea, there are lessons here that exist for every person who would want to be someone who praises the God who delivers. We learn something about what praise is, what it's like as we work through this. And so let's learn some lessons about praise 
from this passage. First, know that praise is a response to what God has done. Praise is a response to what God has done. The very first word of chapter 15 is then. Simple word. You know what it means. It connects one event to the next one. It says something happened, then something else happened. It's a key conjunction in our language, and in this point, it bears a great theological point because the great act of deliverance of Israel being delivered from Egypt by God's miraculous and mighty hand has just happened. Then comes the song. That's the way it works. It's a response to what God has done. Even back in Exodus chapter 4, Moses has gone to the Israelites after a meeting with God at the burning bush, and he goes and tells the Israelites what God said at the burning bush and about his plan to free them from their slavery. And it says in Exodus 4.31 that they believed and bowed their heads and worshipped. But that only came after they heard what God had said. So even then, it's still a response. True worship, true praise is a response to what God has said or what God has done. And multiple times, it's both at the same time. Even though Exodus 15 finds us right after one of the greatest events of world history, it's still not complete God's deliverance yet because he still is going to bring them to the promised land. So there's more that God is going to do. But based on what he's done already, there's enough to praise him for. You don't have to wait until the completion of everything. You just have to wait until God has said or done something And then there is reason enough to praise him. This is the way it always works. We're always responding to the great works or the great word of God when we praise him. It's always a response. He's always the initiator. He's always the one that we are responding to. In Matthew 28, verse 17, we find... This is after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, and he appears to his disciples, and it says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. It was after he'd done all these great things of his life and his death and his resurrection, and now they bow and they worship. Luke 24, a similar scene, it's after his death and his resurrection, before Uh, He had departed. It says in Luke 24, verse 51, it said, While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. There's a, um, a need between Luke 24 and Acts 1 for the people to respond in praise who have seen the risen Christ. When you see the great and mighty works of God or you hear of them, you have to respond in praise. It's always a response. Second lesson we learn about praise 
is that praise involves a resolve from the ones benefiting from God's great acts. Praise involves a resolve from the ones benefiting from God's great acts. What is going to keep you praising God through thick and thin? Are we just saying a song that says whether the sun will shine or whether the skies will rain? I know that you are good. What's going to keep you responding in praise through the thick and thin of life? What's going to keep you with a song in your lips? Part of it is that there has to be a resolve that this is your life now. Having experienced the great deliverance of God that he has purchased for you at the cross, for all of those who know the forgiveness of sins, the newness of life in Christ, you now have a commitment that you can make that you are going to worship your God no matter what comes. So there's a resolve that happens. Moses and the people of Israel sing this song, and notice what they say. Verse 1, I will sing to the Lord. Verse 2, I will praise Him. I will exalt Him. Kind of an odd thing that while you're doing something, you say what you're doing. I'm of the persuasion that if you're doing something, just let that speak. You don't need to tell everybody what you're doing. I don't tell you right now that I'm preaching to you. You already know that. But in the case of the Israelites, they pause for a moment and they say, I will sing to the Lord. I will praise him. I will exalt him. It's as if there's this declaration or a commitment that they're making that this is what they are going to be doing. One of the reasons that this is important, that there has to be a, uh, an inner resolve to do this, is because praise doesn't come naturally. In a sense, it doesn't come naturally. Children, it's widely known, need to be taught to say please and thank you. We enter into this world entitled for everything that we receive, thinking that it's just due to us, and so please and thank you are just kind of an unnecessary platitude that kids don't see the need for. But parents see the need because we recognize that it is not an entitlement that they possess, but is a gift that God provides at all times that we receive meals or clothes or food or whatever. And so we need to be taught to say please and thank you and let it become a pattern of our life where we understand that we are receiving grace upon grace upon grace. And as you begin to understand that your life is not some sort of entitled life, you realize all of these gifts come and you need to resolve to constantly give praise to the giver of those gifts. And so Psalm 34, 3 calls us to join in the praise, it says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Of course we do that. Let his praise always be on our lips. Why? Because he's always good. And we need to have that resolve. I will sing. I will praise him. I will exalt him. You need to resolve. What is it that will generate that resolve in your heart? This is not just a put on your today's to-do list. 
I will praise God, although that might be a good thing for you to do. But that's not simply it. What really generates this commitment to praise is recognizing who the God is that you are praising. Look at the way that the Israelites put it. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, my Father's God. When you come to that conclusion, this is my God. This is the God of promise. This is the God of my ancestors. This is the God who is my strength. Then you have a commitment that will carry you through thick and thin that you are resolved that you are going to praise him. The Israelites, of course, knew that the Lord was their strength. As they walked through that wall of water on dry land, none of them, I'm sure, had it even crossed their mind that by their own might and strength they sustained that water from coming back upon them. When they reached on the other side, none of them could conclude, I brought about this deliverance from the Exodus by my own desire, my own free will, my own strength. This is why they're singing. Because they can say, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my salvation. And you become so consuming a person in your life and so dominant over all things that they say, he is my song. Like there's no one else to sing about. There's nothing else to sing about. It's just him, the God who saves, the God who delivers, the God who has all strength and might. He is my song. In my former life, namely before kids, I used to go to concerts. And I went to secular concerts. And I enjoyed them at the time. And, you know, there's the whole kind of flavor of what's going on there and everybody's singing. And What are you singing about there? What's the song? It's fun for a few moments, but it's not something that lasts a lifetime. It's not your strength. It's not your salvation. I don't go to concerts anymore, mostly because I have kids. But even if I did, I would feel it would be stripped of the, the fun and the flavor of it. Because God is my song. He's everything. He's what we sing about. We don't come to church to sing about our cars, about our bank accounts. We come to sing about our God who is mighty to save. When you have a relationship with God like that, then you can have the resolve. I will sing. Even in the dark times, Paul and Silas, when they were put in the stocks, didn't just decide, you know what, we have nothing better to do, so let's sing praise to the God that has led us here. They had such a fundamental conviction about the goodness of their God that in the moment of trial and imprisonment, they were able to have their hearts still render praise to God. There is a resolve there based on who God was in their life. And so we learn from this that praise involves a resolve from those benefiting from God's great acts. Thirdly, we realize that praise is focused on the God who acts greatly. Praise is focused on the God who acts greatly. He's the one that we sing about. 
Amazingly enough, we get the object of our praise wrong very, very often. Contemporary Christian music gets this wrong very, very often. We live in a me-centered and I-centered culture. And Christianity throughout the ages is known for just being kind of a sponge of the world that it lives in. And it soaks up the spirit of the age. And so Christian music has generally done that. And it soaks in the spirit of the age so that when songs have more me's and I's in them than they do have references to God, then we've lost our way. And instead of declaring, great is thy faithfulness, often the song is there to describe, great is my faithfulness. And we promote all of the ways that we are faithful to God. And it becomes almost indistinguishable from some pop love song between two Romeo and Juliet lovers, where the relationship is just superficial, than between a mighty God and a people he has called to belong to him. So we need to make sure that the songs that we sing reflect the God that we are focused on in our praise. And the great joy of true praise is that it takes the attention off of ourselves. It puts the attention on the one who deserves it all. Oh, it's a pitiful life when we just spend it gazing at our navels. But when we lift our eyes up to the one who delivers, then we have something to sing about and true joy comes. This song of Moses that the Israelites sang, along with Miriam, is profoundly God-centered in its praise. It doesn't mean that the word I or the word me isn't in there. That's not the final standard by which you evaluate our praise. But notice that as this song goes on, the name Yahweh is used around ten times. And references to Yahweh occur about 32 times in these few verses. It is a song from beginning to end about God. One commentator outlines this song as verses 1 through 5, a song about God. It's describing who he is, what he's done. And then verses 6 through 18 is a song to God. It changes from third person, saying who God is, him and his, to verses uh, 6 onward, referring to you and yours. It becomes very personal. We sing about God, we sing to God, but it's always centered on Him. It's a song about God, declaring what He's done, describing Him in lofty language, describing Him as the one who triumphed gloriously, the one who's thrown horse and rider to the sea, the one who has sunk Pharaoh's chariots in the Red Sea, the one who acts by his mighty right hand, glorious in power, the one whose right hand shatters the enemy, and on and on. But it's also a song to God where we directly relate to God and ascribe to him directly his majesty. Some of us find it exceptionally awkward when a room full of people sing happy birthday to you. You just wish that there was one of those trap doors where you could disappear. Sometimes it's awkward when you're the center of attention and a song is sung about you. It's not awkward when we sing a song to God. 
Because he deserves it. He deserves all of the praise that we can give him. We can declare straight to his ears how much he is worth our praise. And it's never awkward. This is a fact that our praise is to be focused on the God who acts greatly. Furthermore, our praise focuses on God's great acts of deliverance for his people. This is where this um, song, if you're paying attention to it, might strike you as a little bit odd. Because as the song focuses on the great acts of deliverance, the great acts of deliverance that come are by means of a triumph God brings over his enemies that is an incredibly violent triumph. Chapter 14 of the book of Exodus is, of course, the the people being brought through on dry ground. They are uh, being chased by the armies of Egypt. And chapter 14 narrates this as Israel escapes their clutches by the mighty hand of God. Then, chapter 15 sings about it. It would be amazingly wrong, uh, or maybe a bit off, if the book of Exodus jumped straight from chapter 14 to chapter 16, without having chapter 15 in there. Chapter 14 describes walking through on dry land. Chapter 16 gets into the grumbling and complaining that happens by the Israelites when they have no food. After God works a great work, he deserves praise. And so it doesn't go straight to 14, narrating the events, to 16, describing what happens next. It pauses for a moment. It doesn't advance the storyline. It pauses for a song. But this is the way that we always work. Because when you see something that's praiseworthy, When you see something that is delightful to your eyes or to your senses or to your experience, you want to stop and acknowledge how great that is. You're walking through a museum and you see beautiful paintings and you want to stop and say something about it or take it in and your experience is really fulfilled when you've got somebody with you and you say, it's a beautiful painting. You don't walk through the museum and just say, oh, I saw the Mona Lisa, check. I got Monet, check. Van Gogh, check. And you might do that if you're kind of a task-oriented person. But if you want to enjoy what you're looking at, you pause, you enjoy it, you talk about it. See a beautiful sunset. The colors are vibrant, and you want to tell somebody, I saw this, most beautiful sunset. Come here, quick, look, look, look. Clouds are purple. Sun is rose. It's amazing. You don't just move on to the next event of your day. You stop and you reflect on what you've just seen and experienced. It's the culmination of the delight in the thing that's happened. And so you can't go from Exodus 14 to Exodus 16 without Exodus 15. God has just worked this great deliverance. You have to stop and praise him. But the kind of deliverance that they are praising him for is like walking through a museum and you see a painting of an absolute slaughter. You say, wow, look at all the blood. That's the praise that they're giving. 
Exodus 14 describes Egypt with nowhere to go and the walls of water crashing in on them. Exodus 15 sings about it. Exodus 14 describes the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Exodus 15 sings about it. That's the whole thesis of the song is verse 1. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously and his glorious triumph is seen in the horse and his rider he is thrown into the sea. And it goes through these vivid details in poetic form. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water's piled up. The enemy said all these things, but then verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. It's a gruesome song. It's an incredibly violent song that they're singing. You don't turn on Christian radio and hear this song. (laughs) If we're willing to reflect for a moment, the songs that we sing in this room are incredibly gruesome, violent songs. As soon as you mention The cross, you're taking on your lips an instrument of torture that was so unbearable that Roman citizens weren't allowed to be put on it. When we talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, we're singing about an incredibly brutal moment in history, perhaps one of the most violent moments in all of history, when an innocent man had his back ripped to shreds by a scourging, his head crowned with thorns that pierced into his skull, mocked, spit upon, beaten, stripped naked, having nails piercing his hands and his feet, holding him to a cross of wood, there left to basically be exposed to the elements, And we sing about it. What a gruesome, horrific scene. And yet, like for the Israelites, when those bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the shore as proof of the full deliverance he has executed for them, when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ in that violent, bloody, gruesome scene, we look to the very place where God has brought about our deliverance, and we sing about it. Some of the great hymns of the Christian faith. O sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine. Yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. We sing that to a melody. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. Proofs I see sufficient of it. Tis the true and faithful word. 
We sing, of course we sing, about one who is stricken, smitten, and afflicted, because therein lies our whole salvation. The New Testament is full of this type of praise. Philippians 2, that famous passage that has Paul describing the condescension of Christ to take on flesh, is the focal point of the death on the cross. A lot of people take Philippians 2, 5 through 11 as a very early church hymn, a song that would have been sung or recited by the whole church. And it says in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's a bloody, violent song the early church sang. It goes on, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 15, another very hymnic portion of Scripture. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The cross was the instrument of victory, for he goes on, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our praise focuses on the great acts of God whereby he brings deliverance. But his deliverance is often through violent means. And we sing the song of the cross. We sing the song of the lamb who was slain. And remember that it was through his death that our life was purchased. Our praise focuses on otherwise unsavory elements that have become everything to us. Our praise focuses on God's deliverance. It also focuses on God's great character. Praise focuses on God's great character. So much of this song focuses on the character of Yahweh. Just a few examples of the way he's described. He's described as my strength, my song, my salvation, my God, my Father's God in verse 2. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 6 says, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 7, the greatness of your majesty Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Verse 13, you've led in your steadfast love. You've guided them by your strength. It's full of declarations about the great attributes of God, how powerful, how wonderful, how majestic he is. You recall in chapter 3 of Exodus, the Lord revealed himself in the burning bush to Moses. And that's where he revealed his name was Yahweh, which means I am who I am or I will be 
who I will be. He revealed himself to be a God who defies human limitations. You, you can't put restrictions on who he is. He is self-defined. He is self-existent. He is uncontrollable by us. He exists with life within himself. And he has a name so exalted that it is, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And so you wonder after you hear that name, well, who will he be? What is he? Well, Exodus and the rest of the Bible unfolds that for us. And we find elements of what he's revealed himself to be in verse 3 describes him as the Lord is a man of war. You take some umbrage with that. You may think well, that doesn't sound right. And remember that this is poetry, so it takes poetic license. And so it's not saying that the Lord is a man and that he's a human being just like us. It's using a description that we can understand somewhat what he is like. It's saying a man of war is a warrior, somebody who is fearsome in battle. And our God is like that. But he's so much more fierce that the weapons of his warfare aren't spear and chariot. The weapons of his warfare are all creation, the very things that he has made, so much so that he can use the waters of the sea to envelop the best military technology that man knew at the time in the chariots that Egypt possessed. I am who I am, the Lord said. Who is he? Well, he's a man of war. Someone who brings about great victory. Verse 11. Israelites, having experienced the fighting power of their God, declare, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Their praise focuses on the uniqueness and glory of their God, on his character, Israel, of course, would, would have um, just been exposed to a culture that was polytheistic. Having lived in Egypt now for hundreds of years, they would have seen the, the rhythm of life of Egypt surrounding the polytheism that they possessed. They had a God for everything. They had a God for the Nile, a God for the sun, a God for the air, a God for the earth, a God for death, a God for life. They had a God for everything. And Egypt put all their stock in those gods, expecting them to sustain life for them in the land of Egypt. And now Israel has seen their God, Yahweh, I am who I am, systematically expose the frailty of each of the Egyptians' gods, showing that they have absolutely no power whatsoever. And so Israel is able to take on their lips this great declaration, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? There's none. Throughout all the plagues, through the crossing of the Red Sea, none has proved comparable to Yahweh. Now, we don't live in ancient Egypt, but we do live in 21st century United States of America. And if you think that we're not as polytheistic as the Egyptians, we're at least as immoral, if not more so. And you have a God for everything. Worship at the altar of technology. Worship at the altar of popularity. You worship at the altar of entertainment, ease, sports, comfort, financial stability, sex, 
pleasure, wealth, fame, and on and on and on it goes. The gods who run the businesses, the gods who run the exceptional technologies we produce, and we become smitten with everything flashy and showy and keeps our way of life going. We become enamored with all of these things. And yet when you've met the true God, the one who's become your strength, your salvation, your song, the one who's rescued you out of a life of triviality, out of a life of sin, and you've met the God who has given you new life and hope where there used to be hopelessness, where there used to be nothing but banality and sin, when you meet the God who forgives you of everything, and you meet the God who did it out of love for you through giving of his only son, the God who works great power, power that nothing else in this world can touch. No other power could bring that transformation to your heart, and you've met that God, and you know him, and you know you belong to him. An iPhone, with all of its bells and whistles, shouldn't hold a candle to him. Sports, with all of its attraction, shouldn't hold a candle to him. Technology, business, finances, you name it, military might, shouldn't hold a candle to him. Or you read the news and you hear about stock, stockades of nuclear weapons or, or tensions between nations and spying and, and warfare and rumors and think, oh man, this is crazy. The gods of this world just seem like they're, they're all out. They're all out to get us. And then you take on your lips the song of Moses. Who is like our God? Who's like him? Not China, not the United States, not Russia, not Ukraine. No sports team, no industry, nothing comes even close to him. And so our worship, our praise, is a way that we express the greatness and the uniqueness of the character and attributes of God. We declare his praises among the nations. Finally, praise induces hope in the continuing great acts of God. Praise induces hope in the continuing great acts of God. There's a shift that happens in verse 13 in the song. It moves from what God has done, really to focusing on what he is now beginning to do and leading them into the wilderness. And it idealizes the journey that they could have through the wilderness and into the promised land. In this moment of triumph that they're experiencing, it seems the Israelites are overflowing with faith at the moment that God is going to lead them into the promised land in such a, uh, an amazing way that in verse 14 it says, the peoples have heard, they tremble. And now all the people that they're going to encounter on the way, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, are trembling and seizing uh, and having these, these seizures of fear about what the God of the Israelites is going to do. Terror and dread, in verse 16, fall upon them. And they, in faith it seems, and in praise, idealize what it's going to be like as they now move from Egypt into the promised land. Full of confidence. Oh, if only it would have remained like this. 
only they would remain the confident people that they express in their song. We know how it goes. They're going to see the people of the Canaanites, and they're going to say, you're bringing us to those monsters. They're going to eat us like grasshoppers. And they get terrified. And they lose their way and end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years as judgment. But at this moment, having experienced the great deliverance of their God, they are full of faith in describing what it could be. They look to the past, knowing what God has just done. And in the present, they declare praise with faith in what God is going to do in the future. And the culmination of it is in verse 17, what the expectation is, is that you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The ultimate consummation of this is that they would be brought to a place where Yahweh dwells permanently among them, and they have constant access to him. We have the opportunity right now as we look back to the great act of deliverance God has accomplished for us at Calvary. And right now we praise him for what he has done, but we also praise him for what he has promised to do in the future. And our praise is intended to induce our faith to go on trusting him. We sing lots of songs about the cross. We sing lots of songs about right now. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, We also need to sing lots of songs about what he's still yet to do, promises yet to be fulfilled to us that we wait in faith for. And through it all, the only reason this works is because verse 18 says, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The culmination of our praise is to simply declare, he is the God who always will reign. We praise him. Well, Exodus 15 certainly gives us lots to think about with our own praise and worship to our God. Let's make sure that we praise him in a way that is fitting to his greatness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us something of your greatness. We've seen it most clearly as we look to the cross. There your wisdom, your might, your mercy, your love all coalesce. We thank you that you have redeemed us from our life of sin. What a great God you are. Lord, we don't always feel like praising you, and we forget sometimes that we need to praise you or have reason to. Forgive us, Lord, for our forgetfulness. Forgive us for our me-centered approaches to praise at times. Father, would you help us to be focused on you and to remember you And I pray, Father, that you would help us to continue to praise you, to grow in praise. You deserve it, certainly, Lord. We do trust that you are the one who reigns forever and ever. And may you send your son back. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. We want you to come and reign and rule. And until that time, help us to submit wholly to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.